Well, good morning. And uh, I thank uh, Dr. Briggs, wherever he is now, for uh, the introduction. Um, yes, I, was, uh, I came here uh, several years ago uh, to be the pastor of a, a small church in the area, and uh, since then I've transitioned into becoming the director of South Rome Redevelopment Corporation, um, which is a ton of fun and a lot of work. Um, but I'm really glad to get to come and, uh, and, and preach every now and then. It's good to kind of get to, to get back in the pulpit. So I always look forward to these opportunities. Um, let's open this time with prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as a body of believers, Lord, and open your, your word, your scripture, your holy and errant uh, revelation. Uh, we ask, Lord, that as you have protected these words down through the ages and through the generations, you would protect them again here this morning. Uh, keep me from mishandling them and illumine our minds and our hearts to understand these words and the message that you have for this congregation and for your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Culture is a very hard thing to escape. It's one of those things that uh, it, it becomes so ingrained in us, even from an early age, that we end up with uh, a lot of assumptions, assumptions that we never really question. Uh, we just kind of go along with it. In fact, it's, you know, it's, and it makes sense. I mean, it's, it's how our brains make sense of the world around us. We just, we start, it's like cultures like this canvas that, that our, our minds paint on to figure out reality. And typically you don't, um, you don't question your cultural assumptions until you have like a, like a cross-cultural experience. You know, so you go into a new culture where th- people do things differently or they think in a different way and you begin to, you know, kind of a switch flips where you say, oh, I, I don't have to think that way. That's, it's different. And that's, that's, that's always a great thing to do that because it always kind of pushes us a little bit. Um, but we have to be careful and we have to be aware of that when we come to Scripture because a lot of times when we come to Scripture, we bring all kinds of cultural baggage with us and it, and it becomes the lens through which we read Scripture and it can contain things and it causes us sometimes to either put things in that aren't there or completely miss things that are there. So, for example, uh, one of the things that our culture has really kind of inculcated in us is this idea of this radical individualism, where we, we, and we, we look at our whole faith, actually, as this in, incredibly individualistic thing. It's just between me and God, and there's a lot of individual individuality that goes into our relationship with God, but the Bible actually has a lot more to say about the community of faith and how the community of faith actually impacts our relationship with God. And, I, you know, I'm sad to say, you know, I, I kind of hate to admit it, but, I mean, there was a time in my life even, like, I think it was, I was in college, actually, um, you know, and I got to this point where I thought, well, you know, it's just me and God. I don't really need the, the church. I can go, you know, sit in the woods and read my Bible and get as much out of, out of uh, my relationship with God uh, as if I was really involved in the church. And that's edifying. It is really good to go and do that sort of thing. But there's a whole part, you know, there's something I'm missing out on. There's something I was missing out on by not being involved in a community of Christ. And so, in fact, I I think Paul would really disagree with my former uh, radically individualistic view of my faith. Paul, in this passage in particular, is calling 
the church to a, a new maturity that comes through involvement in the body of Christ. So let's look at this passage, and I'll tell you, I'll show you, I'll tell you exactly what, or I'll show you how he gets there. We start with verse one in chapter two. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As I said, uh, Paul is concerned with the maturity of the church. And we can see this actually in part of what Dr. Briggs read uh, in the beginning there. As, as he was helping us to come into the worship service in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of, you, hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side uh, for the faith of the gospel. So this is Paul's, he starts off, only let your manner of life, what he's talking about is maturity. Let your manner of life match the gospel. And then he goes into, you know, evidenced by the fact that your community is, is in this radical unity. So, Paul, he, that's the kind of the preamble. That's his, you know, before he launches into this argument. And then you get to chapter 2, and he gets into this whole, uh, this whole stuff about, you know, being of the same mind, having the same love, doing nothing of selfish ambition. And this is, it's full of commands. So, what, so the argument is, he starts off by saying, I want you to be mature and complete. So be a really good community in the unity of Christ. Okay, and so he, he gives all these commands. Now, uh, in my seminary, the, our professors were um, really, really strict about, you know, really pushing this idea that the Bible uh, is full of imperatives uh, and indicatives. So an imperative is a thing to do. An indicative is a thing that's true. And not only that, it, so the Bible has, obviously, it has a lot of imperatives. It has a lot of indicatives. But there's something neat that happens in the Bible and the Bible is actually, there's always a relationship between the two. In fact, um, in Greek and Hebrew, most inflected languages, it's really easy to look at the, what they call the case ending of the word and tell whether it's an imperative or indicative. And so it makes it really easy to like search in databases and stuff to find every imperative and every indicative. And so actually I had a, um, a professor that did his doctoral, uh, doctoral research on this. And he actually went through and looked up every imperative and every indicative in the Bible. And what he found was 
that every imperative, every command to do something was backed up by something that was true. There was always some motivating truth that pushed the people of God to do the thing that was being commanded to do. So, for example, you look at the Ten Commandments. It's ten imperatives, right? But it starts off with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, brought you up out of slavery. So there's this truth statement put right in the front before you get all these commands. And the, the implication there that Moses was saying as, as he's revealing this, these Ten Commandments, he's saying these laws that God is giving you, they're not meant to enslave you. They're meant to set you free. Because this God who freed you from slavery is not going to put you back in slavery. So there's always this truth statement that empowers the commands. And here, too, is no exception. Paul, right in the beginning, chapter 2, the first couple of verses, he's giving a series of commands. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's full of commands. And if that was, if that was where Paul left it, it would, you'd be walking out of here with this burden, like, oh, wow, I've got to be really nice to people. I've got to be really self-sacrificing, which sounds fine when you're kind of idealizing the people around you, but when he's being a jerk and she's not being nice, like, it, it's, a, it's a lot harder, right? So Paul, he doesn't just leave you with the commands, the imperatives. He goes into the indicative, and the indicative is Jesus himself. So we look, if you just kind of go, keep on going on the, verse, uh, the passage, you get to verse 5. Here's the, command, here's the indicative. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in him. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So keep tracking with his argument here. He says, first, be a radically united community. And then he says, look at Jesus. And why does he do that? Well, partly it's because Jesus typifies what it means to be exactly what Paul said. Paul said, put others' interests before yourself. Jesus does that. Paul says, um, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Jesus does that, right? He's completely humble, completely self-sacrificing. And you, you see this. There's, in fact, this Philippian hymn, as, as Dr. Briggs said earlier, uh, one of the oldest uh, hymns we have recorded or a part of a hymn that the early church would have sang, right? This is, and, and good, doc, good songs, they, they didn't just, they weren't just for entertainment. They were meant to convey biblical truths. They were meant to contain doctrine and do it in such a way that you walked out singing it and repeating it over and over again to yourself. So it, it, by all you know, intensive purposes, it was like a, um, like a confession. And the people would have walked out, and that's why Paul is reminding them of this again. Like, remember Jesus? 
The God-man who saved you, this is what he did for you. But not only that, he's showing the perfect unity in the community of the Trinity. Look at Jesus, right? God in the flesh counted equality with God, something not to be grasped, but humbled himself. And if, if, if Jesus can humble himself and put himself under the authority of the Father, right? if Jesus can be humble, what right do we have to be proud? But not only that, it's a worship song, right? There was a, an old Baptist minister uh, by the name of A.W. Tozer, and uh, he had this sermon, and there's one phrase in the sermon always stuck with me. He says, no people ever rise above their view of their God. If their God be a licentious cheat, the people will be a licentious cheat. If their God be a drunken carouser, the people will be a drunken carouser. And what he was getting at is this idea that we emulate what we worship. And you see it. You see it in in children who want to be just like their dads. They put the little tool belt on just like their dad is when he's fixing stuff around the house. We see it in in kids who idolize, you know, that college student who comes home on break and and wants to be involved in the same things that they're involved in and interested in the same things they're interested in. We emulate that which we love. And so, again, Paul, he's saying, if you're going to be a radical community, you have to really worship the God who understands radical community and get an accurate picture of who he is and worship him and mull it over and inculcate it in your head until it begins to change who you are. He drives this home with the last two verses here, verse 12 and 13. And this is where um, we'll spend some interesting stuff happens in the Greek here, so I'm going to get a little geeky. All right, so verse, thir- verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, a lot of commentators and people over the years have had problems with this passage because it sounds like just a cursory reading. Uh, Paul is saying, you know, when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's almost like he's saying, you've got to earn your salvation. You've got to live up to it. So a lot of people have had problems with this passage. Well, um, back, back in seminary, I had, a, uh, had to do a, a, a word study, which is when you do like a deep dive on the history of, of a particular word or phrase that's, um, you know, giving translators a problem. Uh, and so I picked this, this word here, work out. And so I just want you to know, I don't do this sort of, deep research for every sermon. I wish I could, but the, this word here, this Greek word, it's kata ergizaste. So there's two parts to this. Kata is the prefix, which means down, and ergizaste is a form of ergizomai, which is the word where we work. It's where we get the word uh, ergonomic from. So down work, kata ergizaste. Now, there's a problem with this word because... It's a very rare word. In fact, it, it's so rare that uh, translators have a, a fancy term for it. It's called hapoxlegomena, and I can't spell that. But it means that it only occurs once in the Bible. 
Now, that's a problem for translators because typically when you have a word that is hard to translate, it's difficult, it's kind of throwing off your understanding. Because we know that Paul would not be saying here that, you know, this gospel, it's a great thing, and now you have to go earn it. I mean, that would be contradictory to everything that he's ever said. Right? So he, he takes this and uses this word, and it's an old word. And so you have to try to find other places where it's been used to try to get some understanding of how it's being used here. But it's not in the text. I mean, it's not in the, the Bible. You can't find it in the Bible. So where do you find it? Well, I had to turn to uh, extra-biblical texts. I had to go to, uh, you know, ancient um, Greek, you know, manuscripts. And actually, the first place I went was to courtroom literature. Because I figured, well, if, you know, if it means to work off or to pay off, right, it would be in a courtroom literature or a judge hands down a, a sentence and says, you've wronged your neighbor, you must kata ergiza, stay your debt. But it's not there. And I keep looking and searching, and actually, eventually I found it. And I found it in agricultural literature, specifically with reference to how you're to treat your compost before the planting season. So what you're supposed to do is take your compost and spread it out over the ground, and then you're supposed to run the plow through the ground, and you're supposed to turn that soil over and kata ergizus they, the compost, down into the dirt. And so you see, just in a quick little word picture of how this is used, this is what Paul's saying. What he's saying is, all right, you want to be a radical community? Look at Jesus and worship Jesus. And then you've got to take that truth of who Jesus is, and you've you've got to till it down into your heart, into your soul, until it begins to change and fertilize who you are. Kata ergizus they, the salvation that you've been given. Well, what's this business with fear and trembling then? Well, imagine you're in a sports car late at night on a mountain road and it's raining, that there's no moon out. You're driving too fast and you skid out of control and you hit something. The lights in the car go out. You have no idea what happened, but you call a tow truck. Now, the tow truck uh, then comes up, and as the tow truck gets up to the scene of the accident, the headlights of the tow truck pan across what has happened pans across the scene, and suddenly in an instant you see what's happened. You have skid, you've slid out of control, you hit and broke through a guardrail, and now your car is teetering on the edge of a 200-foot cliff. Do you not, at the scene of the salvation given to you in that moment, hit your knees with fear and trembling? What Paul is saying is that we, when we take a look at Jesus, the God-man who humbled himself, who put the needs of others before himself. And when we take the salvation that he then offers you through that, and we begin to to work it down into our hearts and our souls and our minds, it begins to change us. We begin to hit our knees with fear and trembling at the salvation that he's given us. And it changes who we are, and it changes our community. It makes us far more humble. It makes us far more willing to let things go. To count others' interests as, as more important than ourselves because that's the God we worship and that's the God we love and that's the God we emulate. But there's more. You know, uh, Jefferson and I were joking coffee shop this week because, uh, you know, he referenced uh, in last time he preached that the uh, southern dialect has some superior elements to it. Uh, in particular, our use of the single word for the second person plural, y'all. It's, it's something that uh, most inflected languages have, but English uh, proper, proper doesn't. 
And so sometimes we miss out when we read these passages and we come across a second person plural and, and, and we, we don't really, we don't, don't catch what's happening there. And in fact, it goes a step further. We actually have a single word for second person plural possessive, y'alls. And, and that's what we actually see. If we go back to verse 12 and 13, this is what, this is, if you read it with the proper, you know, southern dialect, this is what you would read. Therefore, my beloved, as y'all have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out y'all's salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who, will, who works in y'all both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, even when we read this passage without understanding the plurals there, we read this and we think what Paul is saying is that we need to take a look at who Jesus is and we need to kata ergiza stay that and like off in our own little corner. Take our Bible and go into the woods and, and read God's word and pray. And that's all well and good. But in this particular case, what Paul is saying is this needs to be done in groups. You see, he doesn't start off talking about radical unity and end up saying, go be by yourself and work on this. What he's saying is, he starts off, you need to have this radical community where we're being selfless. Look at who Jesus is. Isn't that great? Worship him, love him, emulate him. Oh, and go figure out this salvation. Because this is the conclusion, remember? Verse 12, therefore. And of course, I know it's a cheesy saying, but it's worth repeating. Whenever you find a therefore in Scripture, you always have to ask what the therefore is there for. It's an inference. So he's making an argument. Premise one, premise two, therefore conclusion. Argument, right? The premise one is radical community. You need to do this. Premise two, Jesus did it. Isn't he great? Awesome. Let's, let's worship him. And then conclusion, therefore, y'all get together in groups and work this out. I like the garden. But I don't like to do the plants that you have to plant every year. Um, so I'm, I guess I'm a lazy gardener. I like the fruit trees and the berry trees that you can put in the ground and they just produce every year. So I've filled my house up with blueberries and raspberries and grapes and, uh, you know, plums, figs, you know, apples, pears, all these sorts of fruit trees. And so anyway, so I've, I've done a lot of planting. And one of the things that, that they'll tell you in the instructions for planting is you want to make sure that you're watering that plant, really soaking the root ball at least once a week for the first year until it gets established. And so one of the things I've learned uh, as I continue to do all this gardening is if you just leave the ground flat around the root ball, then when you go to water, the water's just going to trickle along the surface and it's going to go down the hill and it's just going to, you're not really going to, it's not going to soak in. It's not going to be a deep watering. And so what I've been doing with quite a bit of success is you take the excess dirt from the hole and you create a berm around the root ball. Don't put it on the root ball, you'll suffocate the plant. But you put it around to create this bowl around the root ball. And so then when I go to water, I can fill up this bowl this dirt bowl, and it holds the water there long enough to let the water soak down into the roots. That's what the Christian community does. When we come together uh, in in a worship service, and when we get together in our small groups, or our our D groups, or whatever it's called nowadays, it's the same thing. When we come together, and we open God's Word, and we talk about the things of God, and we're doing it in groups, what we're doing is we're actually raising the things of God to our our level where we can begin to see it, and we hold it there. In our groups, we hold it there long enough to let it begin to soak in 
to nourish us and change us and, and make us a different person. Paul is saying this process of sanctification. Now, look, justification is one worker. God does it. But sanctification is a process uh, of, of cooperation, cooperation with the Spirit. That's what Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit. But it's also something that we do in community. At least that's what I think Paul is saying from this text. Our sanctification, our process of maturing in the faith and changing and becoming a different person and, and treating people different around us, that happens in community. So that's why it's so important that we get plugged into a church and we get plugged into groups I know our, our connection groups are starting up next week. Take advantage of that. Get into these groups so we can create berms around our heart, so we can take the things of God and we can, we can hold them there long enough to let them soak in. And kata ergizaste, the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the incredible salvation that you've given us. We thank you. Lord, for the community, the community of Christ that you have gathered around us, that you've allowed us to be a part of, we ask, Lord, that we take neither of these for granted, that you would work in our hearts and draw us not only to you, but draw us deeper into the community of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.